Welcome to Data Bytes. I'm Susan Wong. And I'm Jesse Chizeski Kay. Susan and I are two statisticians in academia, and we want to bring statistics closer to you. We'll touch on topics in big data, data science, machine learning, artificial intelligence, and the list may grow. In this episode, we talk about how it's possible for gambling websites to put a price on wagering who will die next in Game of Thrones. And then we talk about whether left-handers do not survive as long as right-handers, or do they? <laughs> Let's get started. So as some of you may know, the epic eight-season drama Game of Thrones is coming to an end. Do you watch it, Jesse? Uh, nope, not, not once, actually. <laughs> Well, I did start watching it from season one, uh, but then stopped watching not long after the dragons were born because in my mind, the political intrigue just couldn't possibly matter anymore if supernatural creatures could just blow fire and torch everything in their path. To my surprise, it's season eight now and the dragons haven't actually obliterated everything yet. They've not helped to crown Queen Daenerys as, well, as the ruler of all lands just yet. We should insert a bit of a spoiler alert. Um, if you're not all caught up to season eight, episode four, this is a good place to shut off our podcast a bit early and uh, we'll see you next week. Well, you stopped me just in time, Jesse. I was about to say that not only have the dragons not overpowered and dominated everything, uh, but as of the end of episode four in season eight, two out of the three are now just dead. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and death is something that happens very frequently on the Game of Thrones uh, series, I, I hear at least. Um, season eight, this final season, is where a lot of characters are expected to die. Yeah, and, and I was mentioning to you, Jesse, that I kind of watch this now out of, um, I guess, peer pressure now, because a <laughs> lot of our PhD students and colleagues also watch it. And I was having lunch with a few of our PhD students, and someone mentioned that among their circle of friends, they were starting to take bets on who would die in episode four. And I thought, for sure, this, there is already a market for this sort of betting. Sure enough, there was. Um, one of the websites is called mybookie.org. Ag.ag, and uh, they have at this moment uh, a list of things you can bet on relating to the next episode, episode five of the series. Actually, there are some bets on there that might be related to the entire rest of the season altogether. I'm not sure which of those outcomes were bettable for episode five or for the entire thing. So, just to give some examples, um, you can bet on whether Arya will marry Gendry and whether Cersei will give birth. Are there bets about who will die first as well? Yes, that's, that's exactly kind of the thing that I was thinking about when, when we had that lunchtime conversation. And just to simplify things, what they have are these, what they call death matchups. So basically you can bet on who will die first in a number of pairings. So between the brothers, Jamie Lannister, Tyrion Lannister, that's one of the pairings. And then you also have Jon Snow and Bran Stark who will die first there as well. Uh, there's even one about um, dragons, although this is not quite a death matchup. The way that this bet is phrased is, is kind of hilarious. You can bet on the number of surviving dragons by the end of the season, and your options are either over half dragons or under one half dragons. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds exciting and fun, but I have to say, I feel a little bit bad for the dragons, having not seen it, so I don't know how horrible the dragons actually are. Well, they're not real, so at least they're just CGI. We don't have to feel too badly for them. <laughs> got it, got it. <laughs> 
<laughs> but next to each of these dichotomous sets of outcomes, you have these two numbers um, and they reflect the odds of each outcome. The table header indeed calls these numbers odds, but the default display here shows some really funny numbers that maybe you and I wouldn't interpret as odds. These are positive and negative round numbers like negative 200 and positive 550. <laughs> Yeah, that doesn't really sound like odds. <laughs> well, apparently there are different ways in which bookmakers present the costs and benefits of the bets. The default style presented here are called American odds. Um, what statisticians are used to are what's called decimal odds. So for example, in that death matchup between Jamie and Tyrion, Jamie has a value of negative 500, Tyrion has a value of positive 300, so after looking into what all this means, it turns out that a negative number suggests the amount I would need to put at risk for a $100 return. Um, so if I wanted to bet on Jamie dying first, I would pay the house, that's the betting site, $500. If he actually outlives Tyrion and I'm wrong, then I lose the 500. But if I'm right and he dies before Tyrion, I get $600 back. On the flip side, a positive amount indicates the money I stand to gain if I put down $100 at risk. So if instead I think Tyrion will die first, um, I just have to pay $100 to the house. And if I'm right, I will win 100 plus 300. Um, and if I'm wrong, I just lose the 100. Uh, I see. Okay. So the outcomes with the negative odds is deemed more the more likely one. Um, the bookies think that Jamie will die before Tyrion. Um, you'd have to put more at risk for a smaller return. Yes, absolutely. And if you live in a world, uh, a part of the world that is not the United States, you probably have no idea what we were just talking about. In fact, a lot of these betting websites are localized. So depending on where you're logging in from, it'll show you the odds in different formats. So if you live in Australia or Europe or even Canada, um, they present the normal decimal odds instead. So that's the version that makes more sense to us. Instead of having negative 500 and positive 300, we'd be seeing numbers 1.2 and 4. I guess it's like the imperial versus metric system. <laughs> yeah, definitely true. Um, the U.S. has always odd one out in this respect. <laughs> yeah, even with odds. <laughs> So the four, just to clarify, suggests that there's kind of a one in four chance predicted of Tyrion dying before Jaime, and the 1.2 suggests there's kind of a one in 1.2 chance. Um, okay, let's go with whole numbers, a five in six chance of Jaime dying before Tyrion. Uh, so wait a minute, those two probabilities, the, the 0.25 and 5.6, do not add up to one. You caught me, Jesse. <laughs> <laughs> Well, all getting aside, this is not a mathematical error. This is, in fact, how the bookies make money. So we'll come back to it. But I want to talk about how these numbers, uh, I did use the word sort of, kind of, to qualify these probabilities mm -hmm. in the first place. How do they get determined in the first place? Well, to start off, bookmakers do really want to be good at estimating these probabilities accurately. Um, for things like sports betting, they have statistical models based on historical data, and uh, those will be used to make initial estimates of how to price the bets. Then as more people participate in these bets, the prices can be adjusted dynamically. Um, and that's for the sake of balancing the risk. So for example, if a ton of people think that Tyrion will die first, then perhaps the house will make it more expensive to bet on Tyrion and less expensive to bet on Jane. So in theory, the house would be perfectly happy if the number of people who bet on each outcome is proportional to the corresponding predicted probabilities. In other words, ideally, the losers of 
the bet pay off the winners. That's what good pricing would look like. And the prices will be adjusted to encourage enough people on either side of the bet to kind of balance out the other side. Yeah, absolutely. And so this is likely how the Game of Thrones odds might be set. Imagine if initially the market opened with all outcomes being equally likely, but then the market forces, that is, as more and more people become convinced that Jamie will die earlier, um, you know, maybe they'll jump on that side of the bet, then the prices for Jamie get incrementally more expensive and the price for Tyrion dying first get less expensive. Now, ideally, the house doesn't just price so that the losers pay off the winners exactly. If that were true, then the house wouldn't make any money. <laughs> yes, this gets us back to the idea of why the predicted probabilities don't add up to one. So 0.25 and 5.6 add up to something like 1.08. That extra 8%, well, that's the margin. That's what the house gets to keep for taking on the risk and making the market. When, um, when bookmakers want to compete against each other on price, um, they do so via the margin. So you'll see some websites say that they have lower margins than others. Now, what's interesting about the Game of Thrones um, betting market versus traditional sports betting market is that with Game of Thrones, some people actually know the outcomes. Yeah, like the actors, writers, directors, etc. Uh, sure, surely they already know who will die and precisely when. The outcome of, say, the Champions League final, which we talked about last week, um, nobody can know until it actually happens. Yeah. And just a, just a word on that, there's some major upsets in that in, in the semifinals there. So we're, we're expecting very exciting final game. <laughs> <laughs> so as with stock markets, there is the issue of insider trading um, or just general information leaks. A while back, there was a suspiciously high number of people who wagered that Bran Stark would wind up on the Iron Throne, that's sort of being the winner of the entire Game of Thrones. And at Betway, the betting company that saw this come through previously priced Bran as kind of a long shot. So for them, this is really, really suspicious, and they decided to suspend betting. And uh, more recently, there are rumored leaks of scripts for this final season as well. And of course, that could potentially upset the market as well. So hackers who can get their hands on the scripts could really make a lot of money here. Or the actors themselves, maybe. They're going to be out of a job pretty soon, Jess. Uh, <laughs> that's true. Uh, okay, so who has the highest odds of winning the Iron Throne, according to the bookie? According to oddsshark.com, Bran is at the top, followed by Sansa and then Jon Snow. So if we believe the wisdom of the crowds, there's a lot to be learned from betting markets. There's even a more ascetic term, um, prediction markets, um, based on the way that the odds are constantly updated to reflect the, the balance of popular belief. Um, some studies have suggested that these markets are actually a pretty good way of forecasting the future. So compared to traditional polling, for example, what makes prediction markets better is the fact that the participants are literally putting their money where their mouths are. <laughs> In some recent episodes, we discussed examples where potentially inappropriate comparisons were made between observations or an assessment was made using a model for one type of data, but was applied to data gathered in a different way. For example, back in episode 10, we discussed an article written by Professor Michael Jordan from Berkeley, whose wife had an ultrasound while pregnant, and a geneticist noted some white spots around the heart of the fetus from a scan, which is a marker for Down syndrome. And it turned out that the link between the white spots and Down syndrome was based on older machines that produce lower resolution images 
than the image used to, um, to sort of screen Professor Jordan's wife. So the way assessments of ultrasounds are carried out really should have been updated given the better and higher resolution images. Yeah, and more recently we talked about an analysis of Major League Baseball home plate umpires, and a claim was made that the umpires seemed to have a performance peak because the data used suggested a notable difference in the number of incorrect calls between the younger and less experienced umpires compared to the older and experienced umpires. And we noted there that it was not a fair comparison because only data between 2008 and 2018 were used. We could not tell from this if the older slash more experienced umpires actually got worse. It just wound up being a comparison between different generations of umpires. Yeah, so today we, um, we wanted to present another example of this that will hopefully illustrate, again, our concern. Um, I actually present this example in many of my introductory statistics courses, and I, I believe I first came across it when reading the textbook Seeing Through Statistics by Professor Jessica Utz. Um, a study was published back in 1991 by Stanley Corin and Diane F. Halpern titled Left-Handedness, a Marker for Decreased Survival Fitness. Wow. So, well, that's, that title could actually mean many things, but it sounds like they're claiming that left-handed people die younger than right-handed people. Yeah, exactly. So uh, they actually found that the average age of death for right-handers is 75 years old, and for left-handers, it is 66.03 years, a difference of almost nine years. Without further information, assuming they had a decent sample size, this seems to trigger statistical significance. Um, and with a gap of that large, nine years, that difference is practically significant as well. But hopefully there's going to be a catch here. Yes, and we will see that there is. Um, but So let me just begin by explaining how they gathered their data. Um, the claim is um, that they used a random sample of recently deceased individuals. So this was, again, back in 1991. And um, they obtained their random sample and then sent letters to the next of kin listen, listed on the deceased person's public death certificate. Um, the letters they sent included a handedness questionnaire in order to determine the dominant hand for the deceased person. So in, in particular, they inquired about the person's writing, drawing, and throwing a ball hand. And then the researchers noted um, that they did not mention anything about their hypothesis um, in the letter questionnaire um, because they didn't want that to, to bias the responses in any way. And then ultimately, 2,875 letters were sent out, and they obtained 1,033 responses. So that's a 36% response rate. And then of the 1,033, they were able to use 987 of the responses. Hmm, what happened to the other 50 or so responses? Were their responses so unreadable to suggest they're neither left-handed nor right-handed? <laughs> Sorry, bad oh, joke here. No, I like it. Good joke, indeed. <laughs> um, yeah, I think what they had said in those 50 responses, the um, next of kin weren't quite sure which hand the person used. Um, mm. So it, it was maybe something of that sort. Um, but in the useful sample, what they found was that 5.8% of the deceased were left-handed for writing, 5.9% left-handed for drawing, and 7.3% left-handed for ball throwing. 
Got it. So they had their sample of 987 recently deceased individuals along with their dominant hand measure three different ways. And now they're able to compare the ages of death for left-handers versus right-handers. Exactly. And given the large difference in average age of death, um, they try to explain what, um, what may be going on by considering a series of possible explanations, um, including various environmental risk factors. And so um, they suggest that this large difference in uh, average age of death could be due to, you know, using equipment designed for right-handers, resulting in more accidents for left-handed people. Um, they also suggest and then refute that it could be that um, being left-handed is a marker for other factors that affect survival, mm -hmm. kind of like a, a genetic marker. Um, they also mentioned things like immune issues due to in utero exposure to elevated hormone levels. <laughs> This is standard operating procedure, right? That you find a significant result and then you try to come up with all these theories to explain why you observed it. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So that, that's definitely not unusual. Um, but, you know, for those of you who are left-handed, do not worry. There were some, some flaws in this study. And, um, and in particular, how they collected their so-called random sample had some issues. So while the sample may have been um, randomly selected, the population distribution of left-handers versus right-handers um, seems to have shifted across the 20th century. So it's interesting because um, they actually discuss this sort of shift in the, um, in the distribution of left-handers versus right-handers in the first part of their paper. And they even have a plot of the percent of right-handed people um, by age showing that there is a greater percentage of left-handers in the younger ages than for the older ages. So these shifts could be due to cultural pressures, trying to get kids to be right-handed in the early part of the 20th century or other things that were going on. And they do discuss um, various possibilities, but, um, but what they suggest early in the paper is that these things could not account for, for the large differences. I see. So the problem here is really with this apparent distribution shift. Time is now a variable that is associated with percentage of left-handedness, and it is associated also with age at death. So time is what we would classically call a lurking variable. Yes, exactly. And, um, and just to be clear, imagine that in the first part of the 20th century, 3% of the population is left-handed, and that the latter part of the 20th century, 10% of the population is left-handed. That means that of the researcher sample, a smaller percentage of the older population, so those born in the earlier part of the 20th century, will be left-handed, while the younger deceased subjects in the sample have a comparatively higher percentage of left-handers. And this will make the overall sample average age of death for left-handers younger than for right-handers um, comparatively. And this is all because a sampling frame, that is the pool of individuals considered for sampling from the study, are from recent deaths. A comparison of left-handed deaths to right-handed deaths winds up being more like a comparison of younger deaths versus older deaths. Yeah, and so, so again, um, what we have here is a case of comparing apples to oranges. A better approach would be to gather a random sample that is a sort of snapshot of the current population, then follow that sample and measure the time of death of those in the sample. So this would be what we call a prospective study. Takes a while longer, but probably is well worth it to get more uh, reasonable results. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly.
Thanks for listening to Data Bytes. If you have any questions or suggestions or comments for us, please email us at databytes.podcast at gmail.com. That's databytes with a Y. And if you want to see the numerous articles that served as reference material for today's show, please visit our website at databytespodcast.github.io. Till next time.